I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This week, I want to talk about something I've been avoiding and something I almost made um, an episode about at least three or four times now, but uh, I think it's time. I want to talk about um, colorism in the black community specifically. Okay, so um, so as I mentioned in the last episode, um, I just came back from my family reunion. Um, and if you haven't listened to any of the out of Africa, Glendora Plantation, uh, th- that episode, or if you haven't um listen to the Wichita, Kansas one. You should. I think they're pretty interesting. Um, if you're into genealogy and things like that, I talk about, um, I talk about a lot of stuff in those episodes, but so the Glendora Plantation one, um, is relevant to, um, the story I'm about to tell you because at the uh, family reunion, we actually, as a part of the program, we actually took a trip to the plantation itself. Um, what I ha- I can't remember if I shared. I can't remember if I shared with y'all or not in that episode. But my um, family has. I don't know if it's unique to us. I'm quite sure most many black families in the South um, probably have this. But my family, as well as a few. The, the families that stuck around um, and who were sharecroppers on Glendora Plantation actually have access to a burial plot that is specific for them. Um, I used to think at one, back in the day, I used to think it was just our family, but I learned this trip that it was actually families that were on the plantation um, as sharecroppers. Um, and long story short, if you don't know what sharecropper is, long it is essentially someone who is um, contracted, bonded, um, to pick a product, uh, grow and, 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 and pick out and, and, um, what do you call it? (laughs) Get that product, whatever. Um, and prepare it for the sale for their, um, for the person they're contracted with. And in, and in return, the person who contracts them, um, gives them a plot of land, um, and a few acres to grow their own food, um, so that they can feed their families and things like that. And so many, uh, sharecroppers in the South, that's how they earned their living. Um, so as soon as when slavery was abolished, a lot of folks, the South had, um, and tried to lure black folks back, um, lure black folks back to those plantations to, um, work the land, except now they were saying, oh, now you're going to, now you're going to work and get something in exchange, which we all understand that sharecropping still wasn't the move, but at the same time, it was better than not working at all and being unsure of what you were going to do in the North and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, there's a lot of reasons that people went back to the South, moved back to the South to be sharecroppers. And anyway, the matriarch and patriarch of my family did that. They were in their um, early 20s, late teens, and they they got their freedom papers from uh, South Carolina and they were out. Um, And they went to um, 
Glendora Plantation. And, and anyway, I share that I share that whole story um, in Out of Africa, Glendora Plantation. Anyway, but my point today, um, which is leading into the larger story, I'm going to get there, um, is that we actually went to the gravesite and. I learned way more as an adult than I ever did as a child, only because as a child, I just wasn't, I I don't know, I wasn't ready to process the information. My uh, family on my daddy's side is, my family on both sides are very interesting. The things I learned about Glendora Plantation specifically is, um, so number one, multiple families who were connected with the plantation were actually buried there. Number two, back in the 70s, some white man who wanted, who had since bought the plantation that actually surrounds the, the cemetery, the cemetery itself is sitting in the middle of what is today a cornfield. Back in the day, it was a cotton field. Um, when my folks were, when my, my um, ancestors on my daddy's side were um, sharecroppers, they were, you know, cotton was king, still king. And so anyway, um, it's it was in the 70s that it had converted long ago into corn because corn is king now and has been for quite some time. Anyhow, so this greedy so-and-so decided that, well, you are inconveniently placed right in the middle of my cornfield. So guess what I'm fixing to do? I'm literally going to bulldoze this thing over and you're not going to stop me. So you know how the great, um, the black migration, you know how we left the South and, and moved all the way yonder across the country. Well, long story short, because a lot of folks had left, not just our family, but uh, um, all the families that were buried in there, a lot of their kids had left, leaving just the older folks around. And long story short, it was fortuitous. God sinned, God uh, uh, ordained that my great aunt was tipped off by someone saying, oh, by the way, this old white man, he's, uh, he's already begun to bulldoze your, your gravesite. Um, you might ought to go see about that. So long story short, they stopped him before he'd gotten to the cemetery um, and destroyed the entire cemetery. But when we went um, to visit the cemetery, there were divots, sinkholes. It's like depressions, depressions in the soil. Um, So there were there were headstones. And then there were hooks where it, clear, it was clear that there were there was a headstone that was supposed to be there, but there weren't a lot. It was like a, it seemed like a lot of land and not a lot of headstones for that land. Turns out that the reason why there weren't a lot of headstones is because that was part of what was bulldozed, and the depressions in the in the dirt that we were walking in were actually caskets. That's where somebody was buried, interred. And so I felt like a big old fool because I had been, I had at at that point when one of my cousins told me at that point, I had walked in several depressions thinking it was just, you know, how the, the land was moving. And so imagine my surprise when she told me, no, baby, you've been walking in, um, you've been walking in graves and that's why I've been careful. Um, I was like, well, thanks for, uh, telling me, telling me now, but whatever. Um, I believe that they're not there. It's just that earthly, earthly vessel that's that's there. They're not there. But um, anyhow, it still felt like a heel for having walked on those. But can you believe that this white man was so 
in sin. He was just like, Mm-mm, this won't do. I don't really care what y'all people are talking about. I just want to get rid of this cemetery because I want to, you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to put in, um, the water filtration system. Basically, you don't know nothing about farming, but should you ever Google farmland or if you ever watch those those campy Americana uh, pitches, you know, make America, you know, America is a beautiful place. And then you see all these fields of grain and these fields of corn. And then you see these big old tractors that are walking through these, you know, going through these fields of corn. And then you see these things that look like big old sprinklers big time sprinklers. That's essentially a water filtration system and, and blah, yada, 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 you know, um, doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that you have to develop a system in order to care for that crop, especially the larger your field is and a larger amounts of crop um, is the more acres that your crop takes over, the more you want to make sure that in the hottest parts of the growing season that you're your crop is well, um, well hydrated, well watered. And so that's where the filtration system comes in. So anytime you see all those old school, not old school, but those things that look like big old sprinklers, that's what that is. And anyway, that's what that old man wanted to do to, in, in destroying, he wanted to destroy our farmland so that he would be able to, um, put in a water filtration system. And so back in the day, I think what had happened was, so my um, aunt, my, it gets so muddy. She's somehow, she's my great aunt or my daddy's aunt, which makes her my great aunt, right? Anyhow, so she led a bunch of the families um, that she knew of and took them to court and Lo and behold, a whole bunch of families in the area started coming out of the woodworks talking about, I got people buried in there, I got people buried in there. And so before you know it, so they won their case and there was money doled out, but because everybody in the mama was talking about they had people in that cemetery, um, the the earnings or the, what are you, the judgment, the money from the settlement um, actually didn't turn out to be a ton. And now it's in a state where the cemetery needs to have some regular maintenance on it, um, which isn't hard to do. But when you got most of the family here, there and everywhere, it's it's kind of hard to keep a, a focus on the cemetery. But I made I'm making it my mission. And my daddy, oof, my daddy, it tore him up because, you know, his mama buried there. And so does his daddy. Um, and an aunt that he held a great aunt that he held dear um, was bar- is, is buried there and you know, over the years, the family has taken care of their gravestones and things like that, and they still look good, um, which makes me happy because there's nothing worse than coming by and seeing a um, memorial site in disrepair, you know what I mean, like in disarray. So anyway, um, so in doing my research to figure out, so long story short, they said at the family reunion that the gravesite itself was protected, but the inquisitive person that I am, I was like, okay, so but who said that? Because nobody is trying to bulldoze that thing today, but that 
that cemetery still very much sits in the middle of a cornfield. And it is very inconveniently placed in the middle of that thing too. So what's to stop somebody when, and God forbid, God forgive me for saying this, but this is reality. So you, you know what I'm about to say. What stops anyone when y'all go home to glory? What stops anyone from trying to do the same thing that happened in the seventies? We don't live here. I certainly don't. I live, I live up here in Baltimore. So anyway, you know, I start to dig into stuff and come to find out, I look up Glendora Plantation um, Cemetery and come to find out then in 1908, at the end of 1908, beginning of 1909, some amateur archaeologist with a fancy name who thought highly of himself found some um, Native American or um, First Nation ceramics, not ceramics, pottery, um, buried, guess where? In our fair cemetery. Um, so I question number one, how he found it. Number two, he, this dude was out of Philadelphia. So number one, I question, uh, as white man too, I question number one, how he found it. Because again, we will, when I tell you Glendora plantation, Ain't nowhere on the map. You only know about Glendora Plantation. You only know about the cemetery if you know our family. If you know one of the families whose people were on that cemetery or on that land as sharecroppers. That's the only way you know about that. Or you are connected somehow to the people who own that spot. That's the only way you know about Glendora Plantation. So how this man in 1908 knew about it is beyond me. But anyway, he had excavated aspects of literally Glendora cemetery where my people are buried to um find this this pottery how do i know this because the pottery that he found is archived in the smithsonian um wherever they're kept it's archived online um yeah so i'm thinking that number one it's a burial site so you gotta you gotta really I'm thinking somebody has some sort of record of that cemetery, number one, because there are laws in every state that determine what you can and cannot do with human remains. That's number one. Number two, the fact that it's on the Smithsonian, that the Smithsonian has archived it and literally said Glendora Plantation, um, well, they said Glendora Place, better known as Glendora Plantation Cemetery, Washita Parish knows that they know where this site is so at the very least if there's nothing else we could probably try to get that thing protected the site protected because I, I doubt very seriously that that's the only pottery you ever gonna find in that parish and and, and yeah that that the guy found in 1908 1909 so anyway that story I gotta do some digging I gotta work with my cousin gotta work with my um my uh brother uh, who is an attorney in the state of Louisiana. So that's a, that's um, something. Because, um, you know, it's one thing for you to have an attorney in your family. It's quite another thing to have an attorney in your family that practices law in the state where you're trying to do something. So half the battle. And he has both. He Number one, he has trial um, experience on both the defense and the prosecution. Anyway, so I'm hopeful that we can we can do something um, to protect it. But anyway, so that story is developing. But what I want to talk about today, though, is how does that lead to colorism? So one of the things that I noticed um, at my family reunion 
is something that I knew as a little girl is a truth that I knew as a little girl, which is on my daddy's side and on my mama's side, we have the spectrum of brown. Every shade of brown you can imagine is in my family. And I know, I know I'm not unique. My family is not unique in that. There is every shade of brown represented in every black person's family. Everybody in the diaspora, you got the, you got the range of brown all the way from, from the chocolatey of chocolate all the way to the lightest of light brown. You got it in your family. Um, and it just reminded me, my, my mama, even in my immediate family, my mama is very light. She's very light skin. My daddy's very brown skin. I'm in the middle because I'm the best of both. I, I'm a mixture of the, both of them. I got my mama's face and my daddy's chocolateness. Uh, well, a mix of my daddy's chocolateness, I would say, because you put those two together and you get brown. Anyway, um, so I said all that to say that I'm renewing my mind even now, even as we've just had a conversation or at least Beyonce's song about brown skin girls ignited this whole thing on social media among black folks that I tried really hard to stay away from. But at the same time, colorism is always a part of I'm always paying attention to colorism because ask me why I don't watch Euphoria on HBO. Ask, well, you can't ask me, but I'm going to just, just guess. Why don't you think I watch Euphoria? I'll tell you, because there's no brown skin black women represented on there. I love Zenzaya. I think she's cool. She's not brown skin. She is, as you all know, if you are living and breathing and you're not being weird, you recognize that she is the ideal black woman in, that, in Hollywood, in that she's... She's brown, but she's not too brown. Her hair is, is curly, but it's not too curly, you know? And that's not a diss on her. It's just that is what white Hollywood tends to show as what black woman-ness is. Um, that's what you tend to see in lead characters. You don't often see. It, you do have the Lupitas. You do have the, um, oh, I just saw her in Windows. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. She played in um, how to get. She plays in How to Get Away with Murder. Angela, not nah, no. What's her name? Viola Davis. Um, you know what I mean. You got the Angela Bassett's. You know what I mean. You got brown skin um, actresses. You do have those, but they're not the majority. They're the minority among the represent of the among those that are represented. So anyway, colorism is all around me. And I want to kind of talk about how I've kind of navigated that even as a little girl when nobody in my family ever made any references to my color or anything like that. I, I'll, I just want to talk about how I started to develop this, how I started to develop um, a thought about what I thought about colorism and, and when, how I came to know about colorism. How I've navigated, how I've navigated in the world as I've become more aware and then kind of where I am right now, especially coming back from such a beautiful trip and experience as my family reunion. So anyway, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. I hope you hang in there because it's not going to be, I'm not going to be get weird with it. I'm not going to get self-righteous with it. I'm just going to tell my story. All right.
All right, so stick in there. So before I get into um, what I wanted to talk about today, today's topic, I, I, I want to correct something. I've been saying water filtration system for the farm, um, the plot, the, the farm that surrounds our family cemetery. What I really meant to say is an irrigation system. Um, tomato, tomato, especially if you don't know nothing about farming. But it's important because that's that's very different. Um, again, water ir- irrigation system is bringing the water to the crop to keep it hydrated. And again, our far- our cemetery is inconveniently located in a whole lot of farm uh, crop um, land um, that has crop on it. And, and the only thing that's separating the crop from us, uh, from our cemetery, is a fence and a, a r- driveway, like a, a, a dirt road that allows the folks who own the land and certainly the workers who are tending to the crop and certainly the machinery that's, you know, keeping the crop alive, uh, them access to coming back, you know, go back and forth and, and check on the crop itself. But anyway, again, there's really nothing except... These old timers that are still around, still living in and around uh, Glendora Plantation are not very far, like within 20 minutes. Um, And, you know, maybe some owners who haven't had the will to do anything, but who's to say that if in 20 years, some new owner's gonna come in and say, no, I want all this, I gotta have all of this. So this has gotta go, do you know what I mean? Like. It sounds far-fetched, but baby, ain't nothing new under the sun, and, and uh, people are dogs, and they will do anything that they put their minds to, including walk right all over you and your little family uh, history and heritage. So, yeah, it's a cemetery. Cemeteries have been paved over before, anyway, or r- destroyed before, especially if there was no one to contest the destruction of it. Moving on. Um, so more on that later, because, you know, I got, as you can tell, I have a fire under my behind. And so does my brother, as well as his wife um, and um, a couple of my cousins. You know, the old old timers is like one old timer flat out said, I'm gonna let y'all handle that because I'm old and I get it. <laughs> At the end of the day, I get it. He what is he late 70s? Got to be late 70s. He chilling. Y'all can have that. You want a number? Got that. I'm going to get you that number. Beyond that, baby, that's you. That's all you. You want some history? I got you. But outside of that, that's all you. And I get it. Anyway. All right. So on to what I wanted to talk about today, which is colorism. So um, I think what prompted me to be closer to talking about colorism um, my own personal story about colorism was actually listening to Queen um, Tea with Queen and Jay. Not their recent episode, but their episode last week um, when they were talking about Beyonce's that one of the songs that she dropped on her recent album um, talking about brown skin girls. Um, and she shouted out Lupita. She shouted out Kelly Rowland and somebody else whose name I can't call. But those are the two that stuck out to me, especially Kelly, because I know that they are. It, it has encouraged me that they've been so close. 
Um, and if I'm honest, one of the reasons why I was reluctant to join the Beyonce brigade was because I thought, and I think I've shared this before, maybe I'm not, but I'm going to just share it because it's how I feel. For the longest time, I thought I, I was not giving her artistry a chance because I thought she was just light skinned and she was benefiting from being light skinned and being pretty. And so I wasn't giving her talent a chance. It, did I bop to some of her songs? Absolutely. Was I willing to accept her as an artist that was just going to be in my life? No, I wasn't ready to do that. And so as I've succumbed to the reality that Beyonce makes music that speaks to me and it just is what it is, I've also been encouraged to know that she has kept a close relationship with Kelly Rowland. Now, why was that important to me? It's important to me because... I've always felt like I've always felt like an outsider looking in. I'm not dark skinned, but I'm not light skinned either. I'm kind of just in the middle and being in the middle. And then I'm just kind of weird anyway. Like I've always been kind of a weird and odd duck. But, um, you know, growing up and moving into that awkward teenager stage, I always felt kind of outside and the, and the girls that were popular and again, of the handful of black girls that were in my school, you know, the popular ones were lighter skinned. Um, yeah, they, they were. And I saw how and I'm gonna just I'm gonna just be frank with you. The first time that I thought I, I recognized that you got treated if you were as a black woman, as a black person, you got treated differently than someone who was brown skinned. Um, or, or that there was different treatment between, sometimes there was different treatment between someone who's light skinned and someone who's dark skinned, is watching white people interact with the black people in my um, class and with me. And no surprise, because that's exactly where colorism comes from. That's exactly where colorism comes from. Duh, like it wasn't a black invention. That wasn't a black thing. We only, we only, uh, what's the word? We only... We played the game because it was a part of survival, right or wrong. It was a survival mechanism for us to try to play the game. And if you were lighter skin and you, you tried to have, you know, if you could get an advantage from that, I mean, who could fault you for trying to benefit from it, especially with a, you know, a past that we had was so bleak and there were so many, you know, the deck was, the deck was stacked against us. So, you know, it was advantageous for you to either be light enough to pass if you could, if you could. If you could pass, you would try to, or at the very least, you would try to get as many dollars as you could from these white folks um, because they looked at you as exotic, which is not unlike what's happening now with the Kardashians and a lot of a lot of brown girls that are lightening their skin to try to look more exotic, um, have black girl features, full lips, white hips, and all of that stuff. And this is nothing new to you, but I'm, I'm getting somewhere. Anyway, so this being looking exotic, looking like, oh, I can't really tell what ethnicity you are is like the thing today now, right? And certainly, you know, there's a whole culture in, in New Orleans that was built on that. There was a whole caste system that was built on colorism. And, and if you go outside of the United States and out of black culture, or at least the, the diaspora, and you start going into Asian countries, um, Asia itself, India, you know what I mean? Like there were, there were um, colorism, you know, um, my first introduction to having a real conversation 
about colorism or, or recognizing that colorism wasn't just a thing in the black community was when I went to college and I started hanging out with um, uh, this girl named um, Linda Ho and she was from Hawaii, but her heritage was, um, I believe she was Korean. I believe her heritage was Korean, but I, I don't know that we, I don't know that I, I can't remember anyway. But like we talked all the time and I was telling her something that I was thinking about sharing in my psychology class about colorism in the black community. And she said, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Why do you why do you think you see these some of these Asian students walking around some of these Asian girls walking around um, with parasols on campus during the sunshine, you know, you know, um, in the summertime or walking around with long sleeves in the summertime? It's because a part of certainly a part of. Asian culturally broader, but Korean culture lighter means that you're not poor. It means you have more money. It's more attractive to you. Now, that's how she explained it to me. I know that there are more things that go into that, but that's how she explained it to me. And then what we know is in K-pop, like, what have we found that people who, you know, have traveled to, to Korea and have gotten, you know, skin products that they look at the ingredients and most all of them have lightning products in them. Um, and so anyway, so remnants of that have morphed into other things, you know, remnants of colorism and, and, and um, trying to be favored and, and get favor has seeped into, it, it, you know, it's stood the test of time and has morphed in the African-American community or the black diaspora, I would say, um, but then also in other communities of color where, again, Colorism rears its own head, and again, colorism comes from wanting to adopt a more Eurocentric, or at the very least, more appealing um, look, and appealing to whom? Appealing to white folks. Now, you can, ha- you can hate on that, or you, you can say, tell me I'm wrong, or whatever, but that's just... When I was in high school, middle school, elementary school, I saw it. I didn't see it in my family. Now, my family members, would they joke about each other's skin color? Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? They would have their jokes. But literally seeing the treatment, better treatment, because you were lighter skinned, I saw that in the white folks that I went to school with and how the older folks, not necessarily the students, more so the older folks, not every teacher, but like parents saying, oh, she's so pretty. And not to say that, you know, maybe I looked like a heel back in the day, but like, do you know what I mean? Like taking special of all the kids in the classroom, all these white kids, you know, blonde hair, curly, white, you know, big blue eyes and all of that stuff. Out of all these kids, you go to not... Not the brown kids, not the white kids, because you see them all the time, but the lighter skinned kid who's got the long curly hair, not too curly, but curly, and the light eyes and the light skin. And I saw this as a little girl, and I'm thinking, oh, oh, well, you know, my mama's light, so maybe if I don't spend so much time in the sun, and this is, I'm telling you, this was my experience. This is my seven, seven-year-old thinking, oh, if I don't spend so much time in the sun, maybe I can start getting compliments. Maybe I can become a little lighter, you know. Um, And so, yeah, so I think that I know that's when it started. And again, 
It, it didn't come from my family. Nobody in my family said any of that junk. Nobody, nobody in the family made me think that somehow or another I wasn't cute. Do you know what I mean? My mama didn't go out of her way to say, oh, girl, you cute. It's just every time I would say, oh, mama, I can't wear that color. It's too bright. I'm too dark for that. She was like, I don't really know what you're talking about. You look cute in any color. Wear that girl. And I don't want to hear it no more. Do you know what I mean? Like she wouldn't go out of her way to make me feel. She wouldn't gas me up, but she would like, I don't really want to hear none of what you're talking about. And I asked her when I was in college and when I was old enough to start exploring colorism, really exploring colorism. And, and, and again, right around the time when, you know, Linda was schooling me on, hey, girl, it's not just you. It's not just you. Um, and it's not just black culture. This is like a global type of thing. And I don't even think she was ready to admit where colorism came from. We were all still trying to figure that out. We just knew that it was a problem in our cultures. And we're trying to figure out, okay, how to, how to overcome it. But anyway, it was in college when I was figuring these things out with Linda that I don't know what made me. I guess I started to have more conversations with my mama and, you know, asking about her childhood and, you know, asking about her mom and, and all of that stuff. And I knew that she loved her mom, but she did not have a good relationship with her grandmother. And I never understood why, because up until that point, she never really had shared anything about like, she'd never shared anything really a negative about it, like that her grandmother had done. Not that she was, you know, verbally abusive or physically or anything like that. She never shared anything like that. And at that point, by the time I was in college, we had been talking about a lot of stuff. I had, she had shared something with me that, you know, my sister, one of my sisters was adopted. Um, she's, she is my sister, but she was adopted by my dad. Um, so she's my mother's daughter, but she's not my dad's biological daughter. And up until that point, I knew that we looked different, but like she blew my whole head when she told me that my dad wasn't my sister's father. Anyway, so up until that point, we had, we had been talking about some heavy stuff, but I, I don't know what, we were just talking, I guess. And, um, you know, we had talked about domestic violence and, and stories of, you know, family members and on my mama's side, poisoning some of their husbands when they were getting rough with them and putting hands on them and stuff like that. So they would poison their, their food somehow. And, you know, laughing at the fact that, and I know it's cruel of us, but laughing at the fact that they never actually killed their husbands. They just made them sick. Um, anyway, so we had talked about some stuff. But anyway, so on one of these conversations, I must have been on a break from college and we were just talking like we did, you know, going on some sort of, you know, we, mom and dad lived in the country. Um, and so we were, you know, tooling around Kansas City doing something because mama's my road dog. You know, we, we like to we like to roll anyway. So we were talking and she told me the story of why she wasn't close with her grandmother. And the reason the reason above anything else why she wasn't close with her grandmother is because her grandmother talked about her color all the time told her all the time that she was an ugly yellow, that she was too light, and that she could not date anyone who was as light as her. She had to marry. She had to marry and have children with someone who was much darker with her in order for her to have beautiful kids because she was way too light to have beautiful kids. And she had, she had heard that 
when she was a teen, an early teen, before she, you know, like a, maybe not a preteen, but like teenage years, she started to hear that from her grandmother. And can you imagine? I'm sure you can. I'm sure you've heard. You've lived your life. You've heard stories from parents who, parents or or guardians or, or grandparents who are just, they've got some stuff with them. And because they haven't worked through their issues, they start digging at you or digging at somebody digging at somebody else in their family within their reach and when she told me that I was just like of all the things of all the things you would criticize somebody for their color you literally criticize her for something she can't change and and not only do so you go opposite so you not not so because you think somehow she's got some sort of benefit which again we recognize that there is a benefit there there are folks who exoticize lighter skinned black people there's no doubt about that even black people exoticize um lighter skinned black black people specifically in our culture ch- culture i mean we see it on both sides you know um uh, men and black men and women um Although I tend to see it a lot on Twitter, um, black men exoticizing or at least favoring light-skinned black women. But anyway, we know that that exists. We know where it comes from. We know we've been as a community we've been struggling with it for a while. But my grandmother, she went to the opposite extreme. And she said, you know what? These people might think you this, you, they might gas you up. They may think you so cute, but I don't think you so cute. You way too light. The reason why my mama was white or light is because my, my grandmother, which is my mother's grand, uh, daughter. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me back it up. My grandmother's name is Edith with a Y. Well, oh no, with an I. Her mother's name was Edith with a Y. So Edith with a Y told her grandchild, my mother, that she was too light. And when she was marrying age, she needed to marry somebody that was dark skinned so that they could have pretty kids because she was way too light. So the reason why my mom is light is is a simple one. My um, my grandmother, Edith with an I, is brown like me, maybe a little bit lighter brown than me but from the pictures that I can uh, tell of her she's about my complexion but her husband which is my grandfather was very light-skinned he was very light-skinned because as I was looking into um the family tree and on you know doing my genealogy amateur genealogy stuff I believe that his mother his mother was probably probably just brown but his um father I absolutely believe was white. How do I know this? Because in my DNA, um, well, actually, listen to Out of Africa, Wichita, Kansas, and you'll know all about that. You'll know all about what's in my DNA. But anyway, I won't go into that anyway. So anyway, my mom ended up coming out looking almost my uh, grandfather's complexion, Charlie. Anyway, um, all the kids, for the most part, all of my mama's siblings are lighter shades of brown, but my mom is the lightest. Um, it's just how it worked out. Anyway, so actually my mom and my uncle, my uncle's a little bit, maybe a half shade lighter, uh, darker than my mom, but like he's still light. 
anyway, um, so yeah, but like, and I don't know if my, I don't know if Edith with an I, my great, my great grandmother, I don't know if she kept that same, same energy with my uncle who was again, a half shade lighter than, or a half shade darker than my mama. I don't know if she kept that same energy with him, but she definitely burned that into mama's head. And I just don't know how as a grown woman, do you do you, did, I wonder, did you see her as comp? Like, I don't, I'm sorry, you know where I was going with that. But anyway, like, I just don't get it why you would treat your grandchild like that. But anyway, so my mom, I, I, the reason why my mom didn't like to have colorism conversations is because she got dogged by her own family, by her own grandmother for being the color she was. But then at the same time, You know, she's getting gassed up like, oh, gassed up unnaturally, not because you are a beautiful person and you cute. Your bone structure is cute. You got a cute face. No, these people, these guys specifically were gassing her up at school talking about, oh, you light bright and beautiful. So they liked her because of her color. And then, of course, what happened? She would be getting, you know, she getting fights at school because the guys would intentionally go after her, not because they thought she was pretty in the face her bone structure, but because she was light skinned and so that they would, that would automatically make her a target for all of the browner skinned women that these guys were intentionally ignoring because they were chasing her color, not comparing her to these other girls in terms of their face. They literally thought because she was lighter skinned, she was pretty and that because these girls were brown, that they weren't. Which is a thing, it's a real thing and it's a terrible place to put women because you're pitting women against each other because of things they cannot change. And (laughs) there's so many other layers to that, but like, let's just stick to the colorism. And so my mom grew up with that and which is another reason why she, so looking back on it, when when she told me that in college, we had that conversation in college, it made sense. Why every time, because again, now I told you, when I was about seven, I recognized that if I could stay lighter, I recognized that lighter skinned black, black people got better treatment. They got different treatment from white people. At the time I grew up, I was only around white people. The only black people that I was around for real were my family, which don't count because you're, they're family. You know what I mean? They don't count. So I was just like, okay, well maybe, you know, I'll get more attention if I keep as light as I can. Now, I never tried to lighten my skin, but I definitely tried to avoid the sun. And so anyway, so at seven years old, I'm developing these ideas. And so I'm, you know, I don't even know where I got. I don't know where I learned that black girls shouldn't wear the browner you are, the more you should stay away from bright colors. But somehow or another, as I was growing up, you know, when mama would pick out a bright color for me to wear, I was like, no, mom, I can't wear that. Or we would be in the store and I'd be like, oh, that's cute, but I can't wear that. Or, you know, when I'm trying makeup for the first time and I'm like, oh, I can't wear that color. It's too bright for me. She'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That goes, you you look good in every color. You can wear the rainbow, girl. I don't really care. None of what you're talking about. Go get that blouse. You wearing a dress. You, you know, she, did, she, never pressed, she never pressured me to do things. But like every time I would say I can't because I'm too brown, she would like dismiss it instantly and then move on. Now, she, she didn't have the language to tell me why she was dismissing it that way, but, and I didn't have the, I, would, I, I don't know that I would have listened to her anyway, because again, in my head, I knew I was right, because that's how I had experienced the world. 
Now, after I had that conversation with mom in college, did I begin to see a bigger picture and to, and to try to figure out ways to divest from colorism itself and try to empower all shades of brown? No, I didn't. What ended up happening was what I would see is these black football players and these black guys would come to the school that I went to, the college that I was at, and they would run up, chase after white girls, and the white girls would chase after them because they grew up in a homogenous, all predominantly white space, and they see these black kids and they're running after them. And again, I don't know if they're running after them because, you know, they really like them as a person or that they're running after them because they were an athlete or they were running after them because they're black or all of the above. I don't know. But what I saw was a lot of the black guys ignoring hard black women and running after white girls at this university. Now, was that totally fair? No. Did, did be, be, The thing about it is, because at the time, even after having that conversation with mom, I still, I don't, again, I don't know where I got this. Well, actually, I know where I got this next thing I'm about to say, but I held on to this belief that black men should be with black women and black women should be with black men. We should not date outside of our ethnicity. I learned that from TV. I learned that from radio shows, morning talk shows. My parents didn't say that. Nobody in my family said that. What they did say is white people, white culture is, white culture is a dog um, in terms of the systemic roadblocks that are in the way that are, that are preventing black folks from progressing in a lot of ways and in big ways and small ways, white culture is a dog. And so we had that conversation, but we never had, no, I take that back because I, I swore up and down for the longest time that my, my family was racist against white people until I realized you can't be racist against white people, but you can, you can, black people can't be racist. People of color can't be racist against white people, but what they can hold on to is they can unfairly target white people for the misdeeds of white culture and put all of the sins of that white culture on white people, on individual white people, especially those who, and just not give anybody a chance to be different than what the prevailing culture tells you that white people are. Same as black, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, a, yeah, anyway. I'm not going to defend that. You get it. Anyway, so, so anyway, but so nevertheless, I'm in college and I'm just like, yeah, black people should stay with black people. White people should stay with white people and never the twain shall meet. And so I'm looking at this, I'm looking at these relationships, whatever, uh, these agreements. I don't know. I don't know, really know what they were because that wasn't even fair what I just said, but you get my meaning. And so I'm looking at that and I'm just like, oh, y'all just together because you with that white girl because she's white and you like anything that's light, bright and, and damn near white and or white itself. So you chasing after color and white girl, you are with them because, you know, because they're black and you want you want to piss off daddy or whatever. And so that was my thought process. I did a blanket statement for all couples like that. And that's how I felt all through college. When I left college, I started to, and I intentionally tried to pick back spaces. I moved to Syracuse because I didn't think I could handle New York City. But I moved to Syracuse and it just wasn't, it was too closed off. It wasn't for me. So I moved to Baltimore 
And I wanted to, it was, at first I thought I wanted to be in D.C., but I was like, nah, they're too bougie. I want to be in a city that feels like Kansas City to me. And for all intents and purposes, Baltimore feels like Kansas City to me. Anyhow, so I moved to Baltimore and I'm thinking, okay, majority black city, I can kind of really kind of find my tribe, you know what I mean? Kind of get out, get out how I live, like find other weird uh, black kids, find other weird black kids and um, hang out with them. So that's what I did. And anyway, so, you know, I'm around here, I'm doing my thing. And then, of course, my point of view begins to mellow. And so I'm not so hardcore about what I was thinking. And, you know, a lot of things start to soften. A lot of things start to soften for me. And a lot of those, a lot of those hardline opinions that I had begin to soften. But when I'm, but what I am firm in is that I do, I come to the conclusion that you should be with who you want to be with so long as you're with them for the right reason, not because of the color that they are or because of the, yeah, because of the color that they are. Um, And I support that. And, you know, when it comes to colorism, like recognize it for what it is, which is why I now, because again, when part of the reason why I started to develop, I believe part of the reason why I started to, to develop these weird ideas of how to be more seen is because again tv showed me a lot of that martin was a prime example of that um and and somebody's studied this before somebody's made these points before but um so anyway so once i started to soften my approach on things um what i ended up doing was saying that in my media i don't want i don't wish to watch films and tv or consume products that, that, um, what am I saying? I don't want to consume products that, uh, that have one token black person in the, in a sea of white people. And that one black person is a black guy and there's no black women represented. Or if there are black women represented, that they are, a trash character they're a terrible person they're meant to be a villain or if there's a black woman in there and the only black woman in there is is light skin and there's no other representation a black you know what i mean like if if i want i want multiple i want multiple black women characters because what you see in in television what you see in commercials even so if there's a black person in it there's one and that one person is a brown skin guy but if there's a black woman in it she's often not brown skin and so i began to curate my media and so i do that today i curate my media again i'm more open we're all black all colors all shades we're all black i just think i i appreciate i appreciate growth and I appreciate where I came from and I appreciate where I am now and I look forward to where I will be um because evolution is important but at the same time it's also important to point out things that are harmful and again like I said I learned from tv and I learned from older adults that at the time lighter is better and there was clearly I clearly wasn't light so I needed to do something um and so I want to be the example that I wanted, when, that, I, that I, want, I want to be a better example than maybe I had outside of my parents.
um, about helping someone to feel good about who they are in their own skin. And that includes someone who is queer. Do you know what I mean? Like, I want, I want you to feel good in your own color. I want you to feel good in your own sexuality. I want you to feel good in who you are. Um, yeah, so I know that's a circuit, you know, it's kind of a long, windy road. And I, this conversation for me won't ever stop. But I think this is the first and last time I will talk about colorism anymore in, in a deeper way. Um, certainly, I'm sure that they, I, I might have said some things that were interesting to say the very least. But again, that was my experience of colorism. That's how I processed things. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate I listened to. So w- what the last thing I will say about this is I listened to uh, Queen with T&J and they made a fine point about Beyonce, loving Beyonce and loving the fact that she wanted to talk about colorism. But instead of attacking colorism at the root of it, which is white supremacist capitalism, she kind of did the, oh, you're cute for a big girl. You know, big girls are not, not cute for a big girl, but like big girls are cute too. You know what I mean? She kind of did that. Like brown girls are, co- are cute too. And Queen said, I know I'm cute. She, she considers herself to be brown skin. And she's like, I've, I've had a light skinned woman tell me, oh, you cute too. And she's like, I know I'm cute. I don't need you to tell me I'm cute. What I need you to do is help me dismantle this culture that that basically uplifts someone purely on the basis of their skin color. That's what I want you to do. That I don't need you to tell me I'm cute. I know I'm cute. You know, and, and, and I appreciate that perspective from her. What I would say is that not everybody knows they're cute. And so it just, you know what I mean? Self-esteem is a thing. And not everybody was raised to feel good about themselves. But she does have a point in terms of don't, uh, don't come to me, turn around and attack the problem. Um, yeah. And so, excuse me, I hear that criticism. I absolutely hear that criticism. I also listened to, um, the read and Crystal and, and Kid Fury talked about it too. They talked about it a little bit and they were just saying how ridiculous some, this girl, I don't know if you know, but this girl came out with a video that I did not listen to. And I, uh, I only saw a snippet of it. But basically, she said she made a brown skin girl remix for light skin girls, as if to say light skin girls aren't, again, uplifted because of their color um, in some parts of the black community and in some parts of the white community, too. Um, Anyway, and so they were just like, can we all just be cool? Like, we recognize that colorism is a thing in this society and we need to dismantle it. But until then, can we just, and, and, and not until then, but I guess what they were saying is, let's celebrate the fact that brown skin girls are out here killing it. Can we just do that? And so I see both, I see both sides of that, uh, of, I see, I see different aspects of that same argument, which is the issue is colorism itself. The issue is the reason why colorism exists. We need to tear that down. And in the process, we need to lift all of us up because again, a light skinned girl, she can't do nothing about her skin tone. 
She can't do nothing about her skin tone. No more than a brown skin girl can do nothing about her skin tone. I mean, she can try to lighten it just like a, a, a light skin girl can try to darken it, but that all that comes with risks. They are naturally the color that they are and one person shouldn't be uplifted or another person shouldn't be shunned because of something they can't change. Something as so, it's genetic how we come out looking, how our skin tone shouldn't be a beauty standard. Um, we shouldn't, but we know it is. And so we just got to do the work to try to dismantle that or try to take the power from that. And it starts by being good mentors. It starts by loving ourselves and, and, and confronting those biases in ourselves and trying to dismantle that, which is what I've been actively doing since I've been aware of me doing that. And, um, and, you know, confronting it when I hear it in loved ones around me and friends. Um, but then also turning right around and not making a big deal out of it, but just like uplifting little black girls of all colors, all, sh- all shades. Do you know what I mean? Just uplifting these little black girls because, I mean, what we're learning is people don't really give a dang on about little black girls, black women in American society. It globally, we got a hard, we got a long way. We got a long way to come for people to really care about black women the way they care about no not even the way we got a long way to go to get to a point where black women are valued and respected in the way we should be but that's another conversation for another day but anyway I have not heard as funny as this is I just went on this whole long conversation and I have not heard a snippet of Beyonce's song Brown Skin Girls. You know what I've heard? Other people sing that part where she talks about, you know, you can't throw shade on her because you know, which the, the whole shadow thing. She no, I don't know. Anyway, because she's so brown skinned, like you, you know, you can't throw no shade on her. Anyway, I haven't even heard the song, so maybe I should listen to the song. And, you know, maybe I'll come, maybe I'll have a different opinion about it, but I don't know that that matters. Regardless of what I think about the song, I think we need to continue to have conversations about colorism um, and we need to try to dismantle it as much as we can. Anyway, that is the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Be sure to leave me a favorable rating if you liked it um, on all the places, um, Apple, Anchor, Cashbox, Pocket Cast, um, Radio Public, all the places um, where you can get this show. Um, but on Anchor specifically, um, you can go to the show notes and wherever you're listening to this and you can go to the show notes and click the link and you can leave me a um, message. You don't even have to download it. What will happen is it'll take you to the, my Anchor page, but you don't have to download anything. You can literally just click a button and leave me a message. And anyway, so I would like to hear from you. And yeah, while you're there, um, feel free to donate. Um, Even 99 cents will be a helpful contribution. Okay. Yep. That's it. Oh, but, but again, just leave me a favorable rating. That's half the battle. Um, All right. Thank you so much again for listening. Until next time.